Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Line Trust, specialist fund managers. Hello and welcome to Total Football. Jim White here, pretending to be Tom Gibbs, taking the podcast on the road. And today, We've come to the home of football to speak to the voice of football. Yep, we're at Wembley in the esteemed company of none other than John Motson. We delve into the memory box to look back on John's 40-year-plus career. We look to the future as he opines on the introduction of VAR to the beautiful game. And we ask him for his biggest regret. And you can thank England for that one. Speaking of England, with the World Cup right round the corner, we get Motti's fondest memories, commentating under the pressures of penalties and a greatest eleven. So without further ado, let's head to Wembley. John, what a privilege to uh, speak to you, a man who has seen everything, I would say, in modern football. <laughs> we're, we're at Wembley, which yes. is your kind of spiritual home. How many times have you reported from this place? Well, I started reporting from Wembley in the early 70s when I first joined Match of the Day. First cup final commentary was 1977. And then after that, regular work on the cup final and on England games. Um, I can't really enumerate how many Wembley matches I've done, but I would think over the years it's probably between maybe 100 and 200. Wow. I haven't counted them, so it's difficult to, to be exact about that. But obviously, a lot of this was in the old stadium. Yeah. You know, before we went to Cardiff for six years. And then, of course, when, I, when, when the new ground was reopened in 2007, I did the first two cup finals here. And the last commentary I did here, <laughs> I never thought it would be, was, of course, a Tottenham home match for match of the day. So I have actually kind of said my professional goodbyes to the stadium this season. It's been um, an amazing journey for you. Uh, this season, 
the kind of the goodbye tour, as it were, the John Morrison goodbye tour. Well, Has that been of your? Of your did you sort of? No, no, this? no. This was a BBC idea. I didn't right. know about it until they released the news of my retirement, and suddenly this thing, farewell tour, came up in italics. I haven't really completed it, to be perfectly honest. I didn't get the chance to do twenty games, so I think I've been to sixteen of the league grounds and done the other teams away from home. Um, but it's been very rewarding. I mean, to meet so many people who I've uh, bumped into over the years at all these clubs and um, renewed a few friendships and um, one or two clubs have been kind enough to recognise my departure with a small gift for which I'm very grateful um, and just enjoying the company of uh, football people which has been my way of life since I started. I mean a, a quite extraordinary um, range of games, range of characters. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask you all those things like, yeah, yeah. which was the best you ever Oh, I get that all the time, yes. But, but, yeah. but when you first started, what was your hopes and ambitions? Well, they, they were just to try and get a job in television. I mean, I'd started in newspapers, I'd gone to Sheffield and got a bit of radio experience when the local radio station opened up there in, in 67, 68. I came down to London to work for the what was then the sports side of Radio 2. There was no Five Live in those days. I did three years in BBC Radio and I was lucky enough to get a chance at a crack at commentary. And then... In 1971, um, Ken home left the BBC and I was given a trial by television. And I think the turning point for me, and I, I must admit I feel a bit as though I'm boring people telling this story, but the real turning point for me was when they sent me to Hereford in February 1972 for that cup replay against Newcastle because I really was very much the junior commentator. Um, you know, David and Barry Davis did the big games and I filled in once every three weeks on a, on a, on a possibly a l lower table match in Division One or even the second and third division then. And when they sent me to Hereford, um, Newcastle had Malcolm McDonald and some other um, international stars and Hereford had drawn the first game up there which should have been a warning but I think my bosses thought well this is going to be a straightforward it's a round behind anyway everybody else was playing in the fourth round that day oh so it was a replay it on was a, a Saturday replay on a Saturday but they played the third round replay on fourth round day mm -hmm. and I think the match of the day editor thought okay one or two nil to Newcastle it'll make up the end of the program three or four minutes John can be trusted with that and of course with five minutes to go Malcolm McDonald scored and Newcastle were in front and then the goal that everybody remembers and it's played every cup tie day uh, Ronnie Radford dug this shot out of the mud 40 yards out and it screamed in the top corner and what I didn't know at the time was that goal really changed my life or certainly my career because my friend Ricky George who I'd traveled to the game with because he lived near me uh, came on in extra time and scored the winner uh, Hereford were the greatest giant killers probably of, of the post-war period, if you're going to count that one match. They were Southern League at the time, and they made the headlines, and um, uh, I think people just thought, oh, well, perhaps Motson can do a bigger game, you know, maybe we maybe sh shouldn't be afraid to push him up the running order a bit, because that night, that was the first match on, and I always remember Billy Meadows, the centre-forward, we went back to his house and... 
his wife had just bought American Pie, which was the Don McLean record, which was leading the charts. And we had fish and chips and listened to that song. And it remains probably the most pivotal game in my, or day in my career. I can see, you know, the adrenaline must have been running. Mm. Um, how do you keep control of your, of your nerves, your mouth and all those things when excitement is at its peak? Well, I think two things. First of all, if excitement is at its peak, you've got to reflect it. But not so. A, get excited if you. If yes, but not not start screaming and shout and shouting too much, which um, I've tried never to do. Um, I think you've got to be controlled, but you are in a zone. Of course, you are. Your mind is telling you that you're being listened to by a lot of people, and you've got to kind of keep this in perspective and reflect how the. I think reflecting how the crowd feel. And, and trying to relay the atmosphere is one of the key things a television commentator has to do. Because as I found when I left radio to go to television, everything that I'd been talking, well, the main things I'd been mentioning over and over again on the radio were already evident on the screen. Mm. People could see the score. They could see the amount of time gone. They could see which way the teams were kicking. So all that descriptive stuff goes out the window. And I think apart from identifying the players which, of course, is the first and foremost requirement of any commentator, I think lifting the, the mood of the crowd into someone's front room, even if you have to say they're quiet and not, not much is happening, I think you've got to do that because nobody at home who isn't in the stadium can really sense what the atmosphere is like unless you tell them. The, the, the way in which matches have been broadcast has changed so much. You mm. know, we have... 50 cameras, I don't know how many mm. cameras, all those kind of angles. Has the actual process of delivering a commentary changed or is it much the same as it was when you started? Uh, I think the basic requirements haven't changed that much. I think you've got to be uh, clear and simple and time it properly and identify the players in the right order, um, react in the right way when something happens. Um, I don't think that, that those sort of rules right at the heart of the commentary have really changed. I think what's changed is possibly the technology that goes with the commentator. I mean, when Barry Davis and I were commentating on Match of the Day in the 70s, we didn't have a replay machine with us. Because really? The, so you had, to, the, you had no idea what had happened? The, well, no, it's not, well, not only that, but the BBC's one replay machine was being used for racing because that was live. Um, and when a goal was scored and the players were on their way back to the centre celebrating, Barry and I had to retract the goal as best we could remember it in our own words, i.e. who passed it to who. And, and then when they got the machine back at seven o'clock at night in the videotape area, they put the pictures in and only then over or under what we hoped were our correct words. That, that was quite scary. Nowadays, commentators get five or six replays from different angles. So if you're not sure, you've got a great chance of getting it right by the time the sequence of that particular process is over. So the technology's changed. And of course, the game itself and the way it's presented has changed. I mean, when I started, it was players wore one to 11 and you roughly knew what that meant. Number two was right back and number nine was centre forward. There was only one substitute when I started. It went up to two soon afterwards. Now, you know, you're dealing with numbers like 54 and 37. And, I mean, I saw somebody in 90-something the other day on a televised match, a shirt. And that has not made my life any easier. And the other thing is the substitutes, because... Um, 
whereas it was one or two names you had to change in your mind as you were actually doing the commentary, there are now 14 nominated substitutes, six of whom could come on. And at the end of a game, sometimes I'm struggling to remember. I know who's come on, but I'm struggling to remember who went off, although I've probably said so at the time, because all the names are just jumbled up in your brain. So, yeah, and, and I think the other thing is, of course, when I started, Jim, there were only about six of us doing television commentary, uh, three of us on the BBC and three or maybe four on ITV. Well, now... I had to say this the other day because somebody had gone on, as people do now, looking for the most obscure statistics. Somebody had gone onto a website and said, oh, last week in the UK, 174 people commentated on football. Well, that would have included local radio and regional television and blah, blah. Anyway, well, I must say, perhaps I was lucky because there were only six people and I was able to get through that little group. Now it must be much harder because there's so many people doing it. I don't know, I don't know how one man's voice is distinguished from another at times now. And I don't mean that in any disrespect to anybody, but a football commentary now comes and goes and I don't think everybody necessarily scrutinise it the way they did ours. Because, don't forget, Jim, when I came into Match of the Day in 1971, Colour TV had only been here three years. So, I mean, black and white television had given way to colour and that had given way to commentators whose names were recognisable. And for a long time, we, we, our names, if not, and our voices, not our faces so much, um, were almost a novelty, whereas now they're not. You, you mentioned that there's a kind of a history of restraint amongst uh, English and uh, or British um, uh, commentators. The, what, what do you reckon to the uh, the I oh, don't know yeah. the Brazilian? Well, oh! I think it's terrific. I mean, and I think never it, been tempted. Well, no, not exactly. But I think it's in keeping with the nation in which you're working. I mean, the Brazilians have this great expression, don't they, in, in the way they play and in the way they react to it. Uh, we are more restrained. I mean, our football doesn't necessarily demand you going off the meter when something happens. I mean, I've heard commentators on one or two occasions almost losing their voice. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. I I think it's quite possible to moderate your voice, but to still convey the excitement and the importance of the moment. Of course they expect you to lift it and to go up several decibels. I'm not trying to be kind of um, super calm about this, but I just think somehow or other we, we, we... Possibly the way we react is the, is the way our nation tends to deal with it, with incidents and things that happen. You were renowned for your homework, and 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 I remember um, coming along to uh, trail you before a match, <laughs> looking at the way you did your homework and the remarkable depth you went into. Um, was that easy? Was that? Did you enjoy all that aspect of it? Well, when or was it a chore? Well, no, it wasn't a chore. It was a challenge because you see, don't forget. In my early days, when I was doing homework, I couldn't sit at home and watch a match five nights a week because the live football wasn't on. So I had to go to a training ground. You saw me in a hotel trying to spot the faces of the Sunderland players before the cup final. Um, I I researched things on on the hoof, really. I, I went and met managers. I went to evening games and hung about in the corridor to say hello to people. Um, <laughs> because the, op- the option of, of, of watching these guys on the television at least once a week just wasn't there. So, yes, I, I did go into... Funnily enough, in my early commentaries, when I did sort of meticulously dig out some fact or figure, I was accused quite often of too many statistics. 
And now I open the paper and I was, <laughs> Jim, you'll know what I mean. I mean, I cannot believe some of the stuff that comes out now. It's so intricate, so detailed, and at sometimes almost far-fetched. Um, I would never use three-quarters of the stuff that appears now in newspapers statistically in my commentary. I, I, I mean, I still research a few facts and figures that are, irre- that are relevant, um, but I, I, I have to say it makes me smile because I, I don't know what I must have started because it, it's now mind-blowing. Um, one, one thing that happened this week that really took me aback was the EFL saying that clubs are no longer, or mm. p- possibly next season, no longer obliged to come up with a programme. Mm. I mean, are you... That, that's, that's a real access to yeah. those kind of stats. Well, are, you a, are you a programme collector? I am, and I was. And I was talking to somebody in the newspaper world about it this morning. Um, yes, I've got quite a proud collection of old cup finals and England games. Um, are those personal things? Matches pers- you've, you've... No, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily, no. I, I collected some old cup finals a while ago and some England matches. Uh, I haven't kept... No, funnily enough, the reverse. I haven't kept the programmes from the games I've done. Um, I don't know why. I think perhaps it's just, well, once the game's over, you know, the programme isn't necessarily all that... I don't know. Um, I... I've got two views about this thing. I mean, I, I, I think the, the difference between programmes now and programmes when we started, they're not, the, they weren't the glossy production you get today with all those pictures and articles. Basically, they were quite well produced, but they were there to tell you the teams. Mm. You opened the middle of the Charlton programme when my dad first took me to a match, and the two teams, Charlton and Chelsea, were, were spread out in formation, and, and, and frankly... Those teams were the ones that played. I mean, occasionally you had to make a change if somebody was late, had been injured late in the week. Um, but by and large, the idea of buying a programme was so that you knew who you were going to watch. Well, now, of course, if you look at the back page of most of the glossy programmes, you've got a squad list of 32 for both teams, and you've got no idea... Who, well, the crowd in the ground have got no idea who's starting until it's announced... Either Well, either on the, I don't know, I suppose the club website would be the first mm. one. To, yeah. So, you know, Jim, the websites and everything have really taken over now. That's the point the Football League are making, that fans get their information in other yes. ways. And it's more up to date because the programme obviously can't be printed on the morning of the match. And I think it's become quite expensive and maybe not so many people are buying them. So I can fully understand the EFL's point on this. But I also, I think programme collecting will continue because there are some very good catalogues come out. Uh, I get one every month from people whose auction houses do a great trade in them. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. Looking back over your career, this I'm afraid this is what everyone's going to be asking you. you mm. You've ar- arrived at a point where, mm. you know, you encapsulate everything great about football for the last how many years? Well, 40, I, I don't know, I'm trying to... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Well, it's probably getting on for 40, but anyway. Where was your favourite place to commentate from? Um, well, uh, in, terms of, in terms of actually where the perfect commentator's position was, it would have been Fulham, with the back to the Thames, behind the stand, because it was right over the halfway line, 
There were no obstructions. The ladder was easily accessible. But actually, I'm picking holes. I'm really splitting hairs here because since the Premier League started, uh, every commentary position is very similar. My only criticism of it is that sometimes they're a long way back from the pitch. And because everybody's been obsessed with putting the commentator where the cameramen are, which is absolutely unnecessary because you've got contact through your headphones anyway, uh, Jimmy Hill always used to say the commentator should sit in the middle of the stand at the front. Um, we never got to that point, unfortunately. I tried to, I tried to resurrect one, not resurrect, but I tried to invent one or two better commentary positions at certain grounds. But I didn't get much support from anybody. I wouldn't say at the moment that I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, oh, that's the best commentary position because it's nearer the dressing rooms, or which which comes into it as well. Do you have to walk round the ground? Um, if you don't, then that gives you a bit more time to stand in the tunnel and collect information. It's it, it, it it's. Pretty good now because, you know, they're all purpose-built. I mean, I mean, I can tell you some bad ones. I mean, when I started, Newcastle's commentary position was in the paddock with the spectators. Well, you were um, standing in the middle stand- of the Well, not standing, but there was a tiny little box. <laughs> and that was true at Stoke as well. Now, that's all changed now because they've built new stands and everything. So... Yeah, the, the camera positions and the commentators' position have moved on with the redevelopment of the grounds, really. Uh, was there, were there any where you had to, were very precarious? You had to sort of go up ladders and yeah, they felt the, as they the, were about to collapse there in were, a whiff of wind? The, well, there were, and, and, and health and safety wasn't as, it wasn't as uh, invasive then as it is now. I remember at Leeds United, the ladder was sheer to the side of the stand. I mean, if you'd fallen back, you wouldn't have been doing another commentary. Um, it was a bit scary. Um, but now, you know, as I said, because of the safety instructions, the, the, the access to commentary positions now is a lot better than it was. And presumably the, the, the grounds become associated with the matches within them. So, you know, great, everybody says great European nights at Anfield you'd well, like to go to yes, and so on. Yes, I, I think, well, obviously... Um, the, the, the big grounds have got their own particular memories and their own particular history and you know the fans there are aware of what they've achieved before and you get this anticipation before the game and you know grounds like yeah I mean Anfield and Old Trafford and and, and, and of course all that it's moving on all the time Jim I mean I nearly said White Hart Lane and then I thought well not next well not now and Highbury I mean that, that you know but the new grounds I mean, they've so superseded for access and comfort and facilities, the old ones, that although people sometimes nostalgically look back and say, cool, I wasn't like this when it was... They don't after about a year and a half. All that that goes when they appreciate where they are now. Now, the one club where that probably hasn't happened yet is West Ham because there are still people going to the London Stadium that say it's not Upton Park and it's this and it's that... I'd be surprised if they're still saying that in two mm. years. I, I think it takes a while for your loyal support, the man who probably been brought there by his dad or his granddad, it takes a while for them to adjust. And it might be that it's just taking a little bit longer at West Ham than it does and it has for other clubs. One of the things that you changed your job um, midway through, in the early days it was just commentary, and then gradually you had to start doing interviews post-match mm. and so on. Who did you enjoy interviewing the most and, and who was the least? Well, Brian Clough was the best because you knew you were going to get an interview, whether, however he decided, whatever rant he decided to go off on, it was going to be good television. 
I mean, the first time I interviewed Cluffy, I said to my producer, what am I going to, what do you think I should ask him? And he said, well, he said, get him to read the telephone directly. <laughs> People will still listen. I think in a way, Brian Clough brought a new element to managers in front of the media because he, he was the first to recognise that television exposure could be so profitable, if you like, mm. uh, and with your image, and others followed. Hardest one to interview? Well, obviously it was a bit combative at times with Alec Ferguson. We had one or two run-ins, but he was always OK afterwards. I think now, interviews have now just become sound bites, haven't they? Mm. You know, you're not going to get a four-minute... As we used to do it on Match of the Day. We used to interview the winning manager for three minutes or so. But now you're going to get 30 seconds from him, 30 seconds from a player, 30 seconds from the opposing manager. And I have to say, and I don't do many of them now, but some of the questions, it's just become so predictable. Well, that was a great performance, wasn't it? Jose, or whatever it is. It doesn't really bring the best out of them. And having said that, they've got so many of these media commitments to fulfil at the end of a game that I don't think they've got the thinking time or even the patience to give you the kind of interview you might want, well, that the programme might like to have. So I think we're in this instantaneous era, aren't we, where everybody wants 30 seconds of this and 30 seconds of that, preferably as soon as possible, yesterday if they can. You know, that kind of thing. And that reflects itself, I think, in the post. The post-match interview area now, and I can speak about Saturdays on Match of the Day, and I'm sure it's true with all the live games, is chaos. I mean, there are respected journalists and broadcasters from all over the world coming to Premier League games now. And every manager has to be prepared to cut himself up in little pieces and satisfy them all. Um, I know it's part of the job and they get well paid. Um, my word, it's different to when we used to stand outside, the six of us used to stand outside the dressing room door waiting for Bill Shankly to come out or go out on the pitch with a camera and, and a... And a a light to make sure he could be an interview Jack Charlton. I've done that in my time. But now, of course, once again, it's far more polished. You know, managers go into, well, the written press, for example. They go into a theatre, don't they? And you get cameras at the back and, and then the opposing manager. It's much more structured now. Whether, whether it's as much fun, I don't know. I went to the uh, Manchester Derby the other day and I couldn't believe the number of um, little booths that yeah. have been set up on the touchline. It yes. must have been all, all the European broadcasters, mm. the foreign broadcasters. Yeah. I mean, there must have been about 20 of them. Well, there are. For a big European game now, I mean, clubs that have gone up unexpectedly to the Premier League, I say unexpectedly at that time, the Bournemouths of this world, uh, and I can name lots of other clubs, have actually had to reconstruct their television positions completely, widen them and make more room. And as you say, on a big night, goodness knows where they put them all, but that's an example where they have to build a special section to accommodate everybody. And that's the size of the Premier League now um, and the size of the Champions League at the really big games. That, 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 that's the reality. The other thing that you've uh, been involved in for a long time and is happening this year is is the World Cup. Mm. Um, where did you most enjoy um, a World Cup? France 98 comes to mind straight away uh, because it was a real football country. They'd invented the thing to start with and they won, of course. So the atmosphere in Paris was fantastic. The stadiums were so good. There were no running tracks. You were in a football ground. You had a good position from which to commentate. And I think France 98 was my happiest World Cup. In terms of discovery, 
I mean, Argentina's 78, I'll never forget, under military rule, and the ticker tape and, and uh, all that stuff. Um, in Did the... that restrict you as a journalist there? Did well, you notice there, that? Well, I mean, you were aware that there was a sort of a shadow hanging over the city and the country, and you were also aware, of course, that everybody expected Argentina to win. Um, and and, and who, who knows what would have happened if they didn't. But anyway... That that was a, that was an exciting one, and and the USA in '94, which you know, a country that still hadn't really adopted association football as its national sport. It maybe is getting nearer to it now, um, but the way they converted the stadiums in the states um, into football grounds that that was terrific. Um, actually, Jim, I went to ten World Cups. And I can honestly say not one of them, in terms of enjoying the experience, not one of them was a disappointment. Though England have frequently disappointed. Well, that's, that's uh, been my only regret. Do you feel, do you feel, yeah, I was going to say, do you feel a neutral when you go there or are you I think hoping for the moment that Well, England people win? have often asked me about neutrality and not being biased, and um, which I've tried ever so hard to maintain, but I think the only time I ever felt I could allow myself to commentate from one team's perspective, if you like, was when it was England. I had to be careful not to say us and we because, of course, the residents in... Uh, the Welsh, Irish and Scottish people living in England didn't like that at all. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I was aware of the expectation. I was aware of how many people in England were listening. And when you do a quarter final and the audience comes back and it's 24 million, not that I thought about that while I was doing it or I'd never have got a word out. But, I mean, it, it magnified um, the significance of what I was dealing with. And, of course, probably one of my only regrets is I never saw England in a major final. You know, I was in Turin when we got to the semi-final in 1990. I did goodness knows how many quarterfinals in both the World Cup and the European Championships. And we never got a team through to the finals. So I wish my commentating successes every success in getting us there because I didn't manage it. Penalty shootouts. Yeah. How, how did the nerves play oh. for the commentators? Well, again, again, I can look back and say how things have improved because when we first had penalty shootouts, there wasn't a clever diagram on the screen. Um, you had to mark up your own piece of paper with the 10 boxes. And I, I'll tell you something, I have never felt more scared than when I did the penalty shootout in Turin in 1990, Bobby Robson's team, because I thought, if I lose track of the sequence here and I say England are through to the World or more likely Germany are through to the World Cup final and I suddenly realise there's one more kick each to go, I'm going to be buried for all time. Um, fortunately, I did. <laughs> I did actually. Do. This is why when people say, "Oh, you must have been gutted when England lost," well, it took me an hour or two to wind down, having had that sort of challenge in the last few minutes of the broadcast. And of course, I felt it later on. But um, no, I found nowadays, of course, that you can look at a screen and you can see the ticks and yes. the cross it. Did you practice penalty shootouts? Then? Uh, no, not quite. But I, but I was always very nervous about doing them properly. I mean, England, if England had won, what a great moment that would have been as a mm. commentator to, to, to commentate on that. But you did do the 5-1, didn't you? 5-1 in... That was, was, my, was that your finest fa moment for England? Well, not my... Yeah, favourite England moment, 5-1 in Munich, 2001. I could live that game again. Mm. 
I think Michael Owen's hat-trick, Sven Joran Eriksson had taken over just before that. Um, there was so much optimism around, and it was such a pleasure to do a live England game abroad. The BBC, up to that point, hadn't done very many, and I felt thrilled that night. I really did. I thought we'd achieved something, and um, th- there's quite a funny story about that, actually, because Greg Dyke was the director-general of the BBC, and the following morning at the airport, um, the, the news came through that the audience was 20-something million, and Greg almost did a lap of honour around the departure lounge. <laughs> and then I said to him, Greg, that's all very well, I said, but what about all the people, because there's 30 million others in in England uh, who didn't see it. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, it's historic. I thought it was at that moment, 5-1. I said, can't we show it again? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, why don't we do it tonight? And he looked across at Mark Thompson, who was then the head of television, but who later became the DG. And he shouted out, Mark, how do we get rid of Panorama? (laughs) And I thought, this is the only time in my life that the England football team will kick Panorama out of the schedules. And they did. And you you were doing the scheduling. And I I did the scheduling with Greg, yeah. (laughs) When you said 24 million people Mm. listening to your commentary, if you thought about that, you'd be so nervous. So who who do you think you are addressing when you're doing a commentary? Well, I think I'm, obviously, I'm addressing the audience. I'm aware of that. Well, though, do you have that in your mind? I think most of them are interested in football in some shape. I mean, they're either fanatics or they're people who take a casual interest or they're families. You you can't direct your commentary at one section of people. I think you talk to, well, you, you, you talk to people in, in, a, in the way that hopefully most of them can understand. And if your style isn't suitable or if they protest and don't like it, well, they'd certainly let, let, let you know now with social media and probably do. But I mean... No, I, 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 I try to make it a sort of an... I wouldn't say it's a conversation. It shouldn't be a commentary. But I try to make a commentary as intelligible as I can. That's all I can... De- that's the only way I can describe it. You can't be too esoteric, can you, I guess? You can't start coming up with things that some of the audience aren't going to understand. No, you can't. And also, you don't... You, you, you can't all... Yes, I was going to say, because there are laws of the game that you should perhaps gently explain from time to time, which, the, which not everybody in the audience is aware of. And you've got to deal with disciplinary matters, red and yellow cards. And we're getting va- dangerously near to VAR now, Jim. Have you done a VAR? Have you done a VAR? Thank goodness at the moment, No. Um, Do you think you might get out without doing a VAR? I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. What's wrong with it? It horrifies me. Only because I'm old-fashioned, if you like. I think the game's done really well for 150 years or whatever it is now with the laws of the game, a referee and two assistants, um, a fourth official who can also play a part and, in my opinion, should. I just always thought the referee... All right, some referees made mistakes. He wasn't infallible, but I always thought the referee was the authority while that while that ball was on the pitch. And I think that they're, some of them say they're pleased with it. I'm not so sure. I think the respect for the referee, uh, the authority and stature which he stood in has been seriously threatened by this. I mean, for a referee to make a, a decision in good faith, whether it's right or wrong, and then have to put his finger in his ear and listen and run across the pitch and look at a video screen, for me, this is almost taking football away from it's almost taking it away from the pitch and putting it on a on a on a computer screen somewhere and working it out that way it, it doesn't fit with me I'm afraid I know that they're going to do it in the World Cup but you can bet your life there's going to be some tricky moments because we're talking about referees from other countries who haven't yet experienced it as many as much of the time as our referees have and we haven't got any referees there so let's see how they deal with it 
because the most significant thing to me is that the Premier League have not adopted it for next season because I think they feel it interrupts the game too mm. much. And the, and, and the beauty of the English game, as far as the worldwide audience is concerned, is because it's so exciting and it's non-stop and it goes from end to end and it fluctuates and it, and it, and it keeps you on the edge of your seat. And I don't think the Premier League are convinced that interruptions of two or three minutes while the referee asks another official 100 miles away to, make, to, to help him with his decision, I don't think that does it for me. I'm going to ask you some best of moments mm, in a minute. Okay. And I'm sure you've been asked them lots. Okay. Before we, before we get on to that, just a final thought about the process of commentary. One of the things that's changed is, particularly on live matches, not so much on uh, um, uh, just watching, co-commentary, the co-commentary yes, coming yes. in. Do you enjoy that? On live games, I, I, enjoyed, it, I enjoyed it a lot. We, I, I had a good relationship with Trevor Brooking, who brought a, a new edge to the analysis and the interpretation. And I enjoyed working with Mark Lawrenson, who had a great sense of humour and could bring me and the whole occasion down to earth occasionally with his quips and was also very shrewd on the game as well. Yes, I think it's a two-handed commentary. It has to be... You have to have a good relationship with your co-commentator. He has to know when to come in and when to stop talking. And Trevor always said he knew when I moved the microphone in a certain direction, that was me done for a few seconds and he could come in. So you need that bit of chemistry. But I think, yes, on a live game, I really think the co-commentator has a major part to play. And as a consumer, who's the, who's the new John Motson for you? Oh, no, no, I'm not going to get into that, Jim. I, it's not for me to say. There are so many of them. And, I mean, I'd, I'd have to separate about ten who work for the BBC alone, <laughs> so I'm not going to get into that. I think when it comes to commentators, one viewer's preference, as Barry Davis used to say, is another man's nadir or whatever word yes. you want to use. In other words... You could go into the street and ask 100 people who their favourite commentator is and you might get nine or ten different answers. So that's why it's such a personal thing. And, you know, I've had my critics. I'm not, I'm not going to hide that. I mean, there were some people who probably couldn't stand the sound of my voice or what I was saying. There were others who were very kind and thought I was talking their kind of language. But I don't think you can pigeonhole commentators and say, well, he's obviously the best and he's the worst. It doesn't work like that. It's, it's who appeals to who. So let's get on to the best. Go on, John, John Motson's best. Best game you ever commented? Well, I'm going to go for the England-Germany 5-1 because I think that was, that was a terrific night. The other one would have been Brazil-Italy in 1982 when Paolo Rossi got his hat-trick and they knocked Brazil out of the World Cup because that was such an emotional day, the way Brazil went on attacking and almost wrote their own um, obituary, if you like, in terms of that World Cup. Um, and Bobby Charlton was my co-commentator that day, and he was in tears at the end with the emotion of it. So that was a day that's always going to stick in my memory, but that might be a bit longer, further back, for people to identify with. Best player you ever saw? English, Paul Gascoigne, overseas players, Cantona, Thierry Henry, Cristiano Ronaldo. Let's have a best 11. Right, OK. Well, I've tried to do this, but it's going to look very odd and it may, <laughs> and it, and it may look very unbalanced. Uh, but I must say, I did it off the top of my head, which is perhaps the best way to do these yes. things. Otherwise, I'd have, been, I'd have been up all night trying to think about it. Wh what era do you want this to come from? Across your time. OK, right. Well, Schmeichel... That you have seen. All right. Well, Schmeichel in goal. Yep. Uh, Gentile of Italy at right back. 
Terry, John Terry at centre-half with Franz Beckenbauer. Roberto Carlos at left-back. Uh, that's the back four. The midfield, Paul Gascoigne, Brian Robson and Michel Platini. And the front three, Ronaldo, Henri and Cantona. It's not a bad team, that, is it? Well, I, I, I know you, there's all sorts of weird not things. Not a bad team. We've got three Frenchmen in there. I don't know what that tells you. But <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, it's a team that... I'm hoping it trips off the tongue because I because I did try and do it without giving it. I gave it some thought, obviously, but not too much because I wanted. The, so it's from the emotions. I wanted the players to hit me in the eye. Yes, exactly. Yes, you're going to be watching as a, a spectator. How do you think England are going to do in Russia? I think if you ask me to pinpoint where I think they'll get to, I think they'll get to the quarterfinals. Um, I think they'll get through the group. They should do. And I think they're capable of winning the second round match that they might come up against Colombia or Senegal. The last eight is going to be the problem. That could be Germany or Brazil. How good Gareth's team is going to be, um, how it'll be well prepared, that's for sure. How good it is at the moment, who he's going to pick. We're still a few, what are we, what are we, six weeks away? And, and the answer to those questions will determine whether we can go further. I would love to see us in a semi-final. I think that would be the most we could expect. Do you think the talent's there? Well, I do think he's brought on some very good young players. I know you might say, well, in two years' time, you could put that argument with a little bit more optimism. Um, I think we have got talented players. I mean, I think, you know, your, your Harry Canes and your Deli Alleys and your, your Kyle Walkers, these are people who've now been in the game a little while and they've developed and they're... I mean, look at Raheem Sterling. I mean, the last time he played in a tournament two years ago, he was almost sort of barracked off the pitch. But look at the way he's played this season for Manchester City. If he could reproduce that form for England, he could frighten anybody. So... I've always been an optimist, I've tried to be, with England because I've had so many disappointments and somehow or other I think, well, this time, this time. And I'm, and I'm still thinking that now. About I think Gareth is very well... Pre- I think he's got a good presence. I think the players like him. I think he's got a hard streak underneath that very amiable exterior. Uh, I think he was a good choice because he'd come through this... You see, the St George's Park project, as it's called, is starting to bear fruit. We've seen the under-17s and the under-19s and the under-20s get to finals and win things. And I think that, all right, those players are still three or four years away. I accept that. But somehow or other, out of St George's Park has come, well, Gareth Southgate, really. Mm. He worked there. Um, And I think the FA now and the England team, hopefully, has a real identity. I know the phrase DNA is overworked. But I think the Dan Ashworth project, if you like, at St George's Park deserves to bear fruit. I know I speak for a, a lot of people. We're going to miss you like crazy. Oh, uh, are you going to miss it? Oh, yes. I mean, obviously. I mean, I'm, going, I'm not going to sort of ever forget the thrill I used to get picking up the microphone at three o'clock on a Saturday, which I preferred to any other kickoff time, by the way. I'm going to miss it, but I've still got a lot of friends who I've made in football, Jim. I mean, I, I, I know I won't, have to, I won't have to go too far to watch a match, put it that way. You'll still want to watch matches, yes. even if you're not working on Yes, it. of course. And, and, I think, and I think it would be crazy of me to try and cut myself off for something that's been a, a lifelong experience. And it, it really has. And, I mean, people often say to me, Carl, what a, what a lucky guy you've been to be paid for what you love doing. And I always say, well, I am. But I do always just add a little rider and say, but there was a bit of work involved as well. <laughs> and, of course, then they laugh and, and it, that's how it is. But, I mean, oh, yes, yeah, so I'm not going to be... 
I don't want to be the forgotten person. I, I might be forgotten in television, but I, I still think I'll get a few people coming up to me for a chat if I go to a football match. It's been a pleasure listening to you, John. For, well, for this <laughs> broadcast and for the last 40 years. Well, Thank you've you been, so much. You've been so kind, Jim, and, and I'm a, a man of your quality, and I, I obviously read you with great um, joy, actually, in, in, the, in the supplement. And I think that... You know, you know what it's like and how hard it can be on our side of the, well, whatever you want to say, on our, our side of the business, if you like. It isn't all uh, wine and roses covering football, but we both had a crack at it, and I'm very proud that we have. Well, that's all from Total Football in the LG box at Wembley this week. In the meantime, make sure you've subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss out on any material, bonus or otherwise. Our music is from Polvo. Buy their sounds for MergeRecords.com. And thanks to Abby Patterson as always. And thank you to you for listening. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist fund managers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.